The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this virtual uh, in fellow in focus uh, with uh, Dr. Lindy Brady and Professor Imo Warantis. So I am uh, delighted so many have joined us in our Zoom room today. We have uh, colleagues I can see from your names, uh, some very familiar people who are tuning in from around the world, uh, never mind in Ireland. So you're very, very welcome indeed. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. And uh, for those of you who don't know the Hub, it's our research institute in the arts and humanities. And we do three things in the Hub. We support the and promote the excellence of the arts and humanities at, at Trinity. We uh, uh, facilitate and um, nurture cross-disciplinary uh, conversations. And then we have, thirdly, a very active public humanities uh, program. But the Hub is above all a community, a very vibrant community, uh, based in a beautiful building in Dublin. None of us are there at the moment, sadly. Uh, so we've become a virtual community um, of early career researchers and visiting fellows. And uh, the visiting fellows are the rocket fuel uh, in the Hub. They bring such uh, great energy uh, to our community. And we've been very fortunate in recent times to have um, secured a Marie Curie co-fund fellowship program. And um, uh, it's in its third year now. And over the course of the past three years, we've had nine amazing uh, fellows. And of course, uh, Lindy is one of them. So one of the things about the fellowship program is that we work in very close partnership with our uh, partners in our academic schools and, and the college library. And so it's uh, my pleasure to uh, introduce um, Professor uh, Imo Warantis, who's uh, an usher professor in uh, early medieval history. And Imo, it's been a joy to work with you uh, over the course of uh, Lindy's uh, fellowship. And I'm going to invite you to get the conversation going. And then after about 25 minutes or so, um, obviously, you'll be taking a Q&A uh, from our audience and we would invite people to use the Q&A function uh, to uh, submit questions that uh, Emo uh, will then ask uh, on your behalf. And then we'll finish up at five to the hour just so uh, everybody can then uh, get on with their day. So without further ado, uh, Emo, uh, over to you. I'm really excited to hear this conversation. Thanks, Jane. Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for the introduction of the, of the hub, of Lindy and uh, of myself. Um, it's a slightly different setup to what it would normally be. Um, this is why you will see me here with my microphone close to my mouth so that everybody can hear me. And um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hope it all goes well on the virtual front. The um, benefit of doing this virtually, obviously, is that um, colleagues uh, from around the globe, I suppose, can tune in, uh, colleagues and interested public. Um, so uh, we will try to give you as much, ch as much chance as possible for your questions. Um, the setup, as uh, Jane said, is that we will kick off the discussion by a rather informal um, question and answer, I suppose, uh, of 20, 25 minutes 
um, which we will, where we will principally focus, I suppose, on career tra trajectory and um, Lindy's current project. Um, but before I kick off with the first question, a brief introduction of Lindy. Lindy joined um, the hub from the University of Mississippi, where she's an uh, associate professor. And um, Lindy is well known to the community for her first monograph, the Writing the Welsh Borderlands in Anglo-Saxon England. And her um, current project in the hub is her second monograph. She's producing at a massive rate. Uh, and this is the, kind of the project that we want to discuss today. Um, welcome, Lindy. Welcome, everybody else. Um, let's start this, I suppose. Um, Lindy, first question. Uh, um, let, let's go from, from very broad, I guess, to um, the more details. Um, there are quite a few young researchers in the room, um, not all of them medievalists. Uh, the question that always comes up is, um, why would anybody um, start a career in medieval? Or what, what, what created the fascination in medieval for you? Thanks, Imo. Um, and, and thank you, Jane, and, and everyone for being here. I know we're all thoroughly sick of Zoom at this point, so it was really nice to see so many people signed up for this. Um, yeah, it's, it's a question medievalists get a lot, as you might imagine. Um, so I had no intention of becoming a medievalist, you know, was always interested in history, read widely, um, but I came from a really non-academic family, although they were very supportive of myself and my sister getting an education. And so like many students in a similar boat, I went to college to do something very practical, um, which was science. And so went enrolled as a science major, but kept taking humanities classes on the side because I was just so fascinated by the material. And um, the, for me, it was really, you know, I remember the moment when it kind of clicked. I had an amazing undergraduate professor of Old English and we were translating Beowulf and got to a word where, you know, we'd all dutifully gone and looked it up in the glossary and correctly put in what the glossary said. And then he paused and said, you know, we actually have no idea what this means. Um, this is the only time this word occurs. We're really just taking a guess based on context. And he went on the, you know, this long tangent about how this, you know, could occur and why and what it might be and what the best guesses are. And I just remember being absolutely fascinated by this sense of, uh, potential that existed in the medieval period that that a poem that people had been studying and you know reading and translating and obsessing over for for so long uh, could have still questions to be answered um, and that has has really what's prompted my work since um, I got fascinated by all of the, the the rich potential that lies, you know, for, for me, what I work on the early medieval period in particular. Um, but I do, I do think that holds for the period as a whole. Okay, that's good. It's, it's actually really nice to hear that it's an inspirational teacher who, who, who kept you who kept you in the game, if you like. Yeah, he, it was. And um, he also is really the, the reason that I'm in this profession. You know, it was, it was not something I even knew that you could do as a job. Uh, you know, for me, a job was, you know, doctor, teacher, nurse, that, that sort of thing. Um, and just hearing that I could go on reading books and writing papers for the rest of my life sounded really appealing, surprisingly. <laughs> well, that's, that's very cool. And that was, I suppose, uh, a professor at Brown. Um, yes. And yeah, Rick Rotham. Yeah. I think quite a few of the younger um, participants, I suppose, uh, would be interested over. How did you go about then moving on from undergrad uh, at Brown um, to, to the next step? Um, what does grad school look like in the States in, in this particular field? Um, how did you choose the college you went to? 
um, and how about the next steps then afterwards? Yeah, well, as most of you probably know, um, grad school in America is a little bit different than it is here. Um, even in the PhD, it's still a partially taught program, so usually six years, uh, more or less, and you're still meant to be learning things during the, the first half of the PhD. And so for me, the, the primary motivation for where I went was just where could I go to acquire the skills I needed. Um, my undergraduate professor was, was really great and drew me up a list of all the people in America <laughs> who were still actively teaching Old Irish. Um, as you might imagine, it, it was a very short list um, and it narrowed even further when I said I wanted to work comparatively, which is something that you know really strongly still motivates my work. Um, wanting to work on the early Anglo-Saxon period, early Ireland, Wales, and Iceland. Um, so a, a very short list indeed. And, uh, Fred Biggs at the University of Connecticut came out at the top. So that's where I went for my PhD. Really fantastic experience. Um, it was a program that, you know, is designed interdisciplinarily. I know that's a word that gets tossed around a lot, but, but it was genuine and it was something really important in kind of shaping my own intellectual trajectory to be at a place where I could do languages, I could do literature, I could do history, you know, I could look at manuscripts. Um, so that's, kind of that part of the, the career path that was really just driven by how do I acquire the skills that I need to work on these really fascinating texts that I want to work on. Okay, okay, great. Um, uh, what I was always wondering about, uh, what would you say, um, is there a difference in the experience as a medievalist um, if you, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are at, do you, do, do you feel uh, a different kind of... Uh, do you feel your work is different when you work in the States than when you are in Europe? And if so, in what sense? Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> this might be fighting words in the, in the Q&A um, for all the Irish medievalists in attendance. But, but you know, in, in talking to many of you, I honestly think uh, this is, is not going to be an outrageous statement. I have had this conversation a lot with uh, fellow American medievalists, and I, I think we tend to work more broadly. Um, this is in part due to the, the you know, weirdnesses of the, the UK, Irish, European job market versus the American job market. Um, on this side of the Atlantic, there are much more opportunities, I think, for postdocs and kind of um, targeted, more focused positions that allow you to work in the specialization that you have actually trained in, um, whereas the American job market, you tend to go into a teaching position um, much more quickly, although it is, you know, getting, I think, towards a more postdoc type situation first. But that means that as a scholar and as a teacher, you have to be very broad, very quickly. Um, so my supervisor encouraged me, and I think it was fantastic advice um, that I still give to my own students, to write a PhD thesis that was broader than I probably would have intellectually done on my own um, in order to be hireable. Because when you're hired, you're teaching everything <laughs> in your field. Um, so to, to kind of make this a concrete example, I was hired in 2012 at the University of Mississippi. So I've been there for the last eight years. Um, and I was hired as an Anglo-Saxonist, which is actually pretty rare in America. You're usually kind of the medievalist um, or one of two if you're lucky. So even as an Anglo-Saxonist, I was teaching surveys that were Beowulf to Pope, right? Everything up to the 18th century, or I was teaching world literature up to 1650. Um, so you really have to be 
broad in, in what you can walk into a classroom and lecture on. And I do think that this tends to make our work more broad. When I think of my, uh, my friends in America and their, their book projects, um, I, I think they are much more kind of wide ranging. Um, whereas here, I think you, you in part because it's a question of access, right? If you're, you're lucky enough to work on this side of the Atlantic, you have firsthand access to all these amazing, you know, manuscripts and artifacts. And, and so why wouldn't you work on that? Um, whereas in America, there's a sense that you, it's dangerous to sort of dive too deeply into to one thing, because what are you going to do if you are writing your thesis on a manuscript that you suddenly no longer have access to because say there's a worldwide pandemic that prohibits transatlantic flights or something crazy like that so yeah that that that, that explains a lot uh, <laughs> uh, though it's, it's it's generally interesting how how people view whether their work changed depending on also on the area i mean one one um, aspect is um the career choices that you make depending on which job market you have in mind that's that's probably yeah. one thing the other thing is um, whether your your work experience also changes uh, depending on where you are working um, so, but you answered both questions in, in, in one go, I suppose. Let's dive into the project. I think um, we are, technically we should have another 10, 15 minutes and we should probably talk most about the project anyway. Um, let's dive into that. So um, what made you fascinated by these origin legends? First of all, I think for everybody uh, in the room, in the virtual room, um, can you briefly describe what an origin legend is um, from what made you fascinated in this genre? And then, and we'll leave it at that for the, for the time being and then we dive deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So origin legends um, or origin myths as the, the phrase implies, right? These are, these are not true stories. So this is not history, um, but these are stories that people told themselves about how their ancestors might have gotten to the place that they did. So for the, the place and time um, that I work on, which is pre 12th century, Britain, Ireland, um, you know, various associated little islands. Um, that's stories about how their ancestors in a kind of long ago mythic past um, might have arrived in the place and time that they now found themselves. And origin myths, I mean, every, every culture, every society has them. Um, you know, the, the more you poke at something uh, that, maybe at first blush looks like history, uh, the more you start to realize, ooh, actually that's, uh, that's probably a myth, right? And so for, for the, my fellow Americans in the Zoom room, um, putting on your little pilgrim hat in kindergarten to celebrate Columbus Day uh, is, is probably the first uh, myth of origin that, that most of us will be associated with, right? where that, that all falls apart pretty quickly once you actually start realizing uh, who Columbus was and what he did and, and how America actually came into existence. You know, families have these, right? You might hear your your grandfather's passionate story about why he left the homeland and come to realize later in life actually he just owed somebody some money and decided to skip out um, but whatever the, the case may be we like having reasons for for how and why we arrived at you know the places we find ourselves and uh, medieval people were no different so uh, collective memory only goes back so far, um, but obviously humanity goes back further. People go looking for answers and go fill in those gaps um, from a whole variety of places, which is what the book project talks about. As for why this project um, 
it really, for me, it arose out of my, my first book project. So Immo was mentioning, it's called Writing the Welsh Borderlands in Anglo-Saxon England, uh, came out a few years ago now with Manchester. And that's very much on the kind of known historical period, right? So, so really um, that runs from, from Bede to um, right after the Norman conquest. Um, so very much people writing down things that were happening around them. So I was reading the same historical chronicles that I actually use for my current project, but I was reading very different sections of them. Um, so I was looking for, you know, people writing down what's going on during the ninth century, who's fighting on the border, who's um, allying with whom, etc. But obviously, as I was reading these, I started getting interested in um, the, the prehistory myths that were part of the earlier sections of these chronicles. The kind of point of my first book is that there's much more contact and uh, collaboration and kind of a sense of regional cohesion on the Anglo-Welsh frontier in the Anglo-Saxon period than it has usually been granted by modern scholarship, for which tended for a very long time. Uh, most people saw it as really just a site of conflict, you know, draw a line down office dyke, two people bashing heads. And the argument is kind of, well, actually, when you zoom in on the border region itself, um, that's not the full picture. And the people who actually had to live there on a daily basis, it turns out, didn't want to kill their neighbors, you know, on a daily basis, maybe sometimes, um, but, but, but not always. And so I got interested in these origin myths and, and found very much the same thing um, where they're picked up in kind of, you know, modern, oh yes, you know, the Irish came from Spain or the Anglo-Saxons came from Germany or whatever um, in a very kind of nationalistic sense. But when you look at these early medieval texts, what you actually find are people recording, you know, multiple, sometimes conflicting stories about themselves, people recording the origins of their neighbors as well, just kind of generally curious to fill in the gaps of prehistory and doing so by exchanging texts and information um, in, a, in a much less combative sense than has sometimes been assumed from a modern perspective. That's great, Lenny. And uh, I mean, what's beautiful about this book project now is that you, that you have um, a broader perspective rather than the national one. So you're focusing on both islands uh, and you're focusing on the origin myth, uh, I suppose, what we would uh, later call the Welsh. Um, or the Britons uh, at the time, the Anglo-Saxons, um, the Irish. Uh, can you give the audience a bit of a sense of um, what, what are the texts that you're looking at? And, and also um, maybe uh, what is the content of these origin myths? Because they will vary from author to author. So what, what may be the, the, the kind of the broad uh, anchorage points in their origin myths? They must have come from somewhere. I mean, the people must have come from somewhere. They anchor themselves in a certain um, historic, pseudo-historic setting. Um, what are these settings and, and what are the, the texts, the authors that you're working from? Yes. Um, so I'll start with the, the texts and authors. So in kind of chronological order, um, earliest text is Gildas de Exidio at Conquest of Britanniae, written in sixth century. Um, so he is a British author writing from a British perspective, very much not history in the modern sense, for those of you unfamiliar with it. Um, what he's really writing is a diatribe about why everything sucks and is terrible and the Britons deserve all the rain of punishment that is falling down upon them at the moment. Um, but in doing so, he includes uh, some important bits of history, one of which is the Anglo-Saxon origin legend, the, the first kind of moment that we see that represented textually. 
Um, next, jumping forward a few centuries, we have the Anglo-Saxon author Bede, um, who is writing as a monk in Northumbria. Um, so this is a, a project that he finishes in the 8th century, um, normally translated as, you know, just Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Um, and he is writing mostly history of his own time. Um, again, very self-consciously crafted from a Christian perspective, um, but includes a lot of this prehistory as he's kind of trying to concretize this, this narrative together, um, telling the story of how, you know, from, from his perspective, the Anglo-Saxons gradually saw the light and became the, the Christian people that they were at the time. Jumping forward another century, um, mid ninth century, we have the Historia Britonum, which is an anonymous text written by a Welsh, um, written in, by a Welshman in Latin, um, much less sort of narratively cohesive than Bede, um, but, but similar type of project, you know, attempting to, to tell as much history as is known at the time. Um, so kind of starting with prehistory and then concluding with a very kind of analytic set of this is what happens in the, the current Anglo-Saxon um, moment. Um, then going to, to two kind of more sprawling Irish texts. Um, so one known as Labor Bretnock, roughly 11th century. All of this is, you know, now we start to get real dicey on, on when things are actually pieced together. Um, but roughly 11th century translation of the Historia Bretonum into Irish that was believed to be first made in Scotland, right? So it was translated into Irish in Scotland, then brought to um, Ireland proper, where it now exists in, in several um, fairly messy recensions. And then finally, the Labour Cavalla Erin, um, again, a, a PC text composed kind of roughly 12th century, um, but then which was had layers of accretion added to it, which attempts to do this, this same type of project from an Irish perspective, kind of pulling all known bits of history um, from the, the dawn of mankind up until the present moment. So those, those are the texts. Um, this project, is, it's, it's a messy project, um, which is why, as I am fond of telling people, there's a reason that this is my second book and was not my first tenure book, um, because I actually had the time to, uh, you know, sit down and kind of sort through all of this without that pressure on the back of my neck. Um, but it's, it's been very worthwhile, very rewarding, and, and I'm really glad I did it. You know, this is material I've been thinking about for a long time, and it's nice to finally have the chance to pull it together. So within these texts, um, which cover a, a vast amount of material, I'm looking at a much smaller um, bits of information. So I'm looking specifically at the origin myths of the four peoples who inhabited you know, the, the Irish Sea region, so, so early Britain and Ireland. Um, so the British, who will later become the Welsh, Anglo-Saxons, Picts, um, in what will later become Scotland and the Irish. And each of these people had an origin myth uh, or legend attached to them about how they got to the Irish Sea region, um, who their earliest ancestors were, what were the reasons for their, you know, finding themselves there, and, so, and sort of what happened in the immediate aftermath of that um, in this kind of early prehistory moment. And uh, I'll, I'll go through them briefly. They're, they're all, you know, very convoluted and you can pull out different bits of them from any given author, which is what makes them really fun to work on. But some kind of key things are um, all of these origin myths, they're rooted, they, you know, they, they are mythical, right? They're, they're, they're not strictly history. Um, but at the same time, they were 
genuine attempts on the part of their authors to root their past or their, their people's past in some sort of real history. Um, so, so none of these have, um, are, are what we might call, you know, creation myths or something like that. There's, there's no native giants sprouting up from the ground. Uh, we don't get that until Jeffrey Monmouth in the 12th century, um, which is why I'm not writing about him. <laughs> but uh, but the, the, the early myths, their attempts to tie people into a biblical framework, a kind of Christ, a known framework of the Christian world, um, and a framework of known history. So, so everyone's got an ancestor somewhere in Eurasia, um, a kind of set of people that they can point back to and say, this is where we came from. We're here now, we're different. We have our own different story, but you know, we were part of the, the broader story of world history all along. Um, so the British myth goes back to Troy. Um, they have an eponymous ancestor, Brutus, who is exiled after a series of disasters, um, wanders and comes to Britain, founds it where it takes on his name. Um, the, the exiling, the wandering, um, and the, the series of disasters are, are themes that are fairly prevalent in these insular origin myths, which is something I talk about a lot. Um, the Anglo-Saxon myth might be more familiar to some of you. Um, again, depending on the source, it varies a little bit, but you have two brothers in a boat who are either exiled from Germany or come across as mercenaries, <laughs> depending on your interpretation, um, who are invited by the British, but overstay their welcome and then take over the island. Um, the Irish are said to have come in a, a, what, what by the, the high middle ages becomes a very convoluted series of wanderings um, in sort of wave after wave of ancestors who um, come from the continent, come to Ireland, inhabit it for a few generations, and everybody drowns in a flood and the whole thing starts over again. So this is to match up to the ages of man, um, that, that part of broader world history that I just mo uh, mentioned a moment ago. Um, so there's, there's several ways of those Irish ancestors, um, most kind of recently having believed to be coming from Spain. Um, and then the Picts are, again, brothers in a boat. Um, there's a few more of them this time who set off from Thras, go to France, and then eventually wind their way first to Ireland, um, where the Irish tell them, mm, we don't actually have space for you. Sorry, please go live in Northern Britain instead. Um, but they, they give them some wives as a consolation prize. So they wind up in Northern Britain and then start immediately fighting with the Britons. Oh yeah, thanks. That that was that, that was a really uh, in depth, I think, um, uh, anal not not an analysis. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you gave us a really good sense of of what the content of each of these is, and they are spread over different uh, geographic spaces and uh, over different um, um, temporal spaces as well. Mm. Uh, I think the main thesis of the book is that um, these authors, these texts, these people shared a kind of a common intellectual thought world that they could, could draw on. So what you're looking um, in these texts then, so that's, that's probably my last question and uh, um, the more uh, in-depth question for the book itself, is um, you, you um, distilled themes in these texts that are common to all of these texts and that, that you, you think um, are kind of defining for um, the maybe uh, um, intellectual thought world of the time. So um, what, what are these themes? Why do you think these themes are so special for the people who um, defined their own origin, their own identity, their own uh, origin myth? Um, what are the themes that are common? And why would these people, um, do you think, have stressed those themes or highlighted those themes 
um, so prominently. Mm, yeah, thank you. Um, so to be clear, this is not something I'm arguing are unique to origin myths of this particular region or time period, um, but it, it is something that I have found is widely prevalent in these and comes to take on a, a kind of, um, I don't know, just greater sense of importance um, and, and becomes an interesting dialogue between these texts. So that, that's really what I'm focusing on. Um, and, you know, you, it's always the kind of question of where do you, where do you draw the line at when you're writing a book? Um, I could have, there's much, much more I could have included. I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And so to me, I, I picked things that seemed most interesting to the text themselves um, because that made them interesting to me is, is really the, the short answer. So what I'm looking at in kind of the three chapters that form the, the core of the book are exile, kinslaying, and then intermarriage and incest. Um, so, so very cheery topics, as you can imagine. Um, and kind of the first, third of, of each of these chapters, what it does is really looks at the intellectual inheritance that these themes are growing out of. Like I said, they're not unique to the Irish Sea region by any stretch of the imagination. Um, these are things that went back to biblical and classical texts that our early insular authors were drawing on as they wrote. You know, they were drawing on the story of Romulus and Remus, or they were uh, drawing on the story of Lot and his daughters, or whatever the case may be, as they're writing. And so I kind of set the scene for the intellectual conversation that was occurring from biblical and classical periods onwards, and then how that made its way into the insular region in these origin myths and is then picked up by them. Um, so exile is really the, the first one I look at, and it's kind of an obvious um, theme in, in very many ways. You have, when you're kind of faced with the blank space of prehistory, the first question that anyone asks themselves is, you know, who were our ancestors? How did they get here and, and why did they get here? And again, not, not every origin myth, um, but a fair amount of them in insular context really pick up on this theme of exile. Exile in the medieval period, um, for those of you who don't work on it, uh, medieval period tended not to have prisons because it didn't have the infrastructure to support them. And so the way that you were punished was not by being physically put in isolation from society, but the other way around, you're kicked out of society and then you have no one to support you, um, no real support structure. And so this is something that existed in, in history and in law during the time and then was picked up on by these origin myths. Um, so in many of them, we find that an eponymous ancestor gets to the insular region by being exiled from wherever he was from. Um, and as a narrative technique, it's really fascinating. This is what I spend a lot of time working on in the book project, is looking at all the ways that this plays out in these myths, because it allows a people to have an ancestor that absolutely has ties to, you know, a, a past history, a broader world, a known genealogy, um, matching up with various biblical ages or what have you, but at the same time, giving them a new name, a new lineage, a, a kind of claim on this place that no one else has um, because their ancestors have literally been kicked out and had to start over. Um, Kinslaying is something that emerges as a kind of key reason for why someone might be exiled. So in a lot of the societies that I'm considering this book, um, as a matter of fact, exile was the legal punishment for kinslaying. Um, it, was a, it was a very serious crime um, for, it, it basically resulted in a legal catch-22 um, where the 
you know, if you kill your own kin, then your kin cannot be properly compensated for the crime or get vengeance for the crime without perpetuating the cycle of kinsling over and over again. Um, so the solution to this in, in some places was exile. And this became caught up in the, the origin narratives as well as a kind of explanatory reason for why someone might have gotten exiled. And again, really kind of fascinating from a narrative perspective where you have an ancestral figure who is simultaneously um, remembered as being the founder while off also having kind of committed this grievous sin. Um, again, not, not by any stretch unique to the early medieval period. This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Um, you know, Cain committed the first murder, the first kinslaying, but was also remembered as the founder of cities and the founder of dynasties. And you kind of, it's kind of has a really interesting duality and narrative tension and these origin myths as well. Um, of course, occurring in the classical period. And then the, the last bit, so the last chapter, Intermarriage and Incest, is really looking at what happens, you know, in these origin myths. All right, so we've got an ancestor, we figured out why he's gotten kicked out from someplace else, how he's made it to a new homeland, um, what happens next? And if you're a group of men in a boat, <laughs> there's, there's kind of, you know, there's two options. Um, and early insular authors were, were really aware of this. And so it's, it, again, a really kind of fascinating narrative um, where you see some going one way and some going the other way. And each one of them kind of brings up really interesting tensions. So again, I just kind of explore in the classical biblical inheritance of all this, what narratives of exogamous marriages and, and, and incestuous uh, relationships they were fascinated with kind of from that inheritance, um, how this played out in a medieval context in terms of the historical legal material, and then looking at them in the text where um, each obviously has its, its problems, um, but it's, it's kind of a fascinating commentary on how the political relationships between groups of people were envisioned. Um, so incest, you know, you, you get to look out for your own people, um, you know, and so people were were aware that this had kind of happened and, and was sort of okay um, in an immediately post-Diluvian sense and sort of brought that like hedging explanation with them. But the, the point is it never really works out well um, for, for anyone and that was definitely something that came through. At the same time, so exogamous marriages, um, you know, they have the potential to to build bridges, um, to, in, you know, strengthen bonds between different communities. Um, what we see a lot of times, unfortunately, is then coming crashing down and not really working out so well. So again, a kind of commentary on, you know, who manages the, the relationship better is a lot of times a commentary in actuality on, on who thought they had the political upper hand at the time that this origin myth was being written down several centuries later. Okay, super. Um... That's, I think, uh, it from me and my question, uh, questions. All that remains to, to be said from my part, I suppose, is do all buy the book when it comes out. Um, and uh, I think we should, we should really move on now to the question and answer room. Um, we'll see if we can cluster some of those questions. Um, the first three that I see here on screen, they certainly um, all focus on interdisciplinarity. Okay. Oh, sorry. Am I cut out? Well, I can ramble on about interdisciplinarity until Imo gets back. So I guess this is this is part part of the uh, obviously. Uh, am I back now? Can You're you back. Yeah. Now? <laughs> say, say what you just so, said again. Um, uh, the first question is by Anna Anna Shahut. Um, she was um, taken by your reference to Beowulf uh, right at the beginning, and uh, her question is: Could you elaborate further 
uh, about the importance of language work in your research for the benefit of um, historians. So I think that is about the interdisciplinarity between your detailed work on, on, on language uh, and um, how that feeds into um, the historian's framework. Thank you so much. That's, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, and it's, it's very much been about interdisciplinarity for, for me and my own work and my own career path. Um, so just to elaborate on that a little bit more, I trained in a interdisciplinary medieval studies department, as I mentioned. I taught for the last eight years in an English literature department because in America, a lot of the times that's where old, the old English language um, tends to be taught. And I'm now, for those of you who don't know, moving to a history department because I feel that that's where my work is going, kind of has always been, um, but also is going in the future. So for me, I mean, languages, they're, you know, as you point out in your question, they're absolutely at the heart of the reason why I became a medievalist. I was fascinated by these texts and the puzzles. Um, I was, I think, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses, obviously, to each sort of system. Um, in terms of the, the European PhD versus the American PhD. Um, for my own educational background, I grew up in a very rural blue collar area. I mean, we had, we had Spanish in high school and that was it. And that was like a recent phenomenon. Um, so I, I most certainly did not have any languages at all at the time I went to university. So I was, I was actually very fortunate to, to go through um, the American system because it, it, it can be a little slow, but the nice thing is that if you're like me and you need to play catch up, it gives you a lot of time to play catch up. Um, so I, I really appreciated actually kind of having the, the freedom to figure out what I wanted to do, um, you know, during my undergraduate years and then having the time to really get the linguistic training during my PhD that I needed to work on, on these texts. Um, you know, in, in terms of the importance of languages to historians, it, it's a tough, it's a tough one and I, you know, it, it's one of those things that I think can restrict interdisciplinarity and that, that's something that I'm always fearful of in the profession. Um, you know, for my, my own part, I, I try and basically do what my professors did, which is encourage my students to get the languages they need. Um, by being really excited about it and, and telling them how cool the things they can read once they get this are um, because you don't want to set up that kind of you know gatekeeping silo feeling where um, this is our turf and if you you know if, if you can't speak well I don't I don't want to I don't want to pick on a particular language but you know if, if you're not a native speaker of the modern version then how dare you work on the medieval version um, is something that I think was unfortunately occasionally common in older generations but I now think is, is thankfully falling out of favor um, so so I think it is important as historians to, to be aware, you know, if you're, if we're working with translations, if we're working on material we're not familiar with, um, we probably are missing nuances and, and to try and get as close to the original as we can without um, letting ourselves feel like, you know, someone's going to come yell at you if you put a toe on their lawn, because that's, that's not the impression I think interdisciplinarity wants to give. Okay, great. Um, there are more and more questions coming in. Um, <laughs> I, I better try to start clustering them. So okay. another one on interdisciplinarity is, is um, the overlap with technology and um, archaeology, I suppose. So it would be the question of, um, have you started to look at using technology, AI, to do the poking of history, geography, and origin stories together to get some non-obvious insights? So can you use technology to get, get you a better sense of what's going on in, in the text? 
Um, the other one is, is uh, similar in a sense, uh, in the archaeological sense, um, DNA work um, from elite burials in, at Newgrange su suggest an inbred elite. So again, there, there could be reflections of what we find in the origin myth uh, in the, in the archaeology. Um, maybe if you can just, just comment uh, briefly on, on those, uh, and then I'll, I'll try to cluster the next few. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, the short answer on the technology questions is no, that has not been part of this project. Um, it is something I would like to work on in the future. Um, in particular, I have I have a, a colleague that I've directed a, a fair few PhDs with um, who's director of the Lazarus project, which uses multispectral imaging to reconstruct damaged invisible texts and, and, and do a lot of really cool things. And so seeing a few PhD students come through that now um, and the, the amazing uh, kind of interdisciplinary digital humanities slash, um, you know, traditional medieval studies projects that they've produced has been really inspiring. Um, I don't think it's something that will fit into this project in particular, but it is something that I am keeping a weather eye on in the future. The, the DNA stuff is a hard one. Um, I, I really appreciate that question. And actually that, that's a really great angle to think about this through that I, I had not considered um, and I, I will do. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. To be honest, I've steered away from DNA stuff in this project because um, I've gotten some kind of dicey questions on it in the past where people want to use modern DNA to prove that, well, the Irish came from Spain or, you know, or this person came from there or whatever. And that's, that's really not what I'm trying to do in this project at all. I'm trying to look at where medieval people thought they came from and what that tells us about their time period. I don't actually care where they physically came from. Um, I understand that's not the question you're asking. And I actually, like I said, I really appreciate that and, and it's something I genuinely want to look into further. Um, but that's just a kind of the reason why I have, have very much shied away from using any kind of DNA evidence in a project on origin this. Right, Lindy, um, let me try to cluster the next few. So um, some of them are on themes. So um, two of the people asking questions were wondering about um, how um, foundational violence and women are in those stories. So obviously you, you pick out certain themes. They were wondering about um, uh, alternative themes like violence bringing people together, the kind of battle experience, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, if, if that is uh, an undercurrent. And the other one is how prominent are women in these origin myths uh, and what role do they play? Yeah, thank you for, for both of those. Um, the violence one is interesting. I would say, I mean, yes and no. The, the kind of one-on-one -on -one violence that occurs in kinslaying, as I've said, I, I do see as important, um, but the, you're very much right. We see, we see it kind of off screen, right, as it were. You know, it's something that happened and that prompted somebody's movement and is now the reason we're here. In the the early origin myths that I'm looking at, it, it does not as much play a part. Um, it very, very much does in kind of later iterations of these, um, especially in the, the labor Kavala where it's the, the cycles of, of invasion and, and pullback become so, um, you know, re repetitive yet building on one another um, that eventually you get, you know, these massive battles with the Tuatha de Danann and, and things like that. Um, but Interestingly, and kind of one of the reasons that, you know, I, I was attracted to these early origin myths and that I do find value in exploring them kind of, you know, as a, as a cluster is um, that 
unlike later post Jeffrey of Monmouth really material where he has, you know, Britain is full of giants and Brutus has to come and he fights the giants and they're, you know, battle and throwing people off cliffs and everything. Um, they're, they're very much empty islands in the, the early myths. And so there's that, that kind of sense, like I said, of, of connection to an, another place, um, but it's not as much an, you know, a, a battle type invasion as we see it. Those, those battles are really kind of saved for um, what might be more, you know, known history or, or remembered history when you do see, okay, now we have the Britons fighting against the Anglo-Saxons or the Britons fighting against the, the Picts and the Irish or whatever. Um, and then the, the second question was women. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, I would recommend Patrick Geary's excellent book on women and origin myths, if this is a topic that interests you, um, which is would be really very good and, and much more broad um, in terms of material that he covers than my project is. Um, again, it's a, it's a kind of yes and no, where in the, the early myths, kind of initially, women are fairly absent, they're, they're fairly silent, yet at the same time, there is this nagging awareness that you need to populate these places somehow and they're going to be rather important eventually so it comes in kind of that that second moment where like oh we've got here kind of now what um where where women are sort of brought into the the picture and brought into the conversation um and one of the things i talk about in the the book it's it's a very small moment but it's one that really kind of struck me as i was working is um in the Anglo-Saxon origin legend in particular, there's mention in the Historia Britonum of an interpreter being present when the, the marriage of the Anglo-Saxon Hengist's daughter to the British King Vortigern is discussed. And you might think to yourself, as I certainly did, you know, when first reading it, okay, interpreter, of course, like they speak two different languages, why wouldn't you have an interpreter? Well, these people have already been meeting each other, fighting, working out war treaties and peace treaties and, you know, exchange, like arguing about how much food they're getting fed over the winter. They've known each other for years at this point. And so it's a, it's a really nice moment where it's a kind of conscious move on the part of an author that there's this sort of, you know, language of fighting that fairly common to humanity. Um, but when it comes to the, the mixing of two cultures, right, it's a very conscious decision. It, it raises that awareness of difference, um, which is why I, think that an interpreter is flagged at that moment and not at, you know, any number of earlier moments where they're arguing about how much land we get or how many hides are we getting this winter, that, that type of thing. That's super. Um, I'm conscientious of time. We have some eight, nine minutes left uh, and I have roughly four clustered, more, four more clustered questions. Really one very, um, very obvious one from the historical perspective. How much do you think these texts are a reflection of the political circumstances of the time? So Viking incursion, how much does that, for example, Viking incursion, how much does that feed into uh, people rethinking their own identity in the face of, of other people coming in? Yeah, great question. I'm, uh, keep giving the same answer. But um, I think it, it does in the sense that, you know, the, the Vikings arrived from elsewhere and were very much made people conscious of where are they coming from, where did we come from, um, which is why you see a kind of flourishing interest in this type of historical writing um, during this time. At the same, the same time, I'm, I'm leery of, and I have always been leery of writing kind of allegorical readings of, of things. Um, so I, I'm not 
trying to suggest at all in this project that, you know, any given origin legend or, you know, motif or whatever was written in response to this particular Viking invasion or, you know, was in, were meant to take these two groups as, as Vikings and X or something. Um, so it's so very much steering away from that, but, but you're right that this is a, a huge moment of, of upheaval that I think does impact the historical writing at the time. Great. And the other question is more uh, methodological or uh, again, interdisciplinarity. Uh, an interdisciplinarity question. So one one is more or less based on um, the idea of a Celtic world, and there has been a lot of pushback towards that that very concept of Celtic. So um, what do you think is 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 a productive comparison between Irish and Welsh texts and cultures? Um, how can you best frame that? And uh, and a similar question uh, along the same lines is um, what has been the advantage of approaching origin myth from a comparative point of view? So basically, is, is there a danger of over, oversimplification, I suppose, as kind of something, for the lack of a better term, Celtic, um, if you like, uh, at the same time, what are the benefits of doing this? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Two, two really great questions, um, getting obviously the same issue from two different ends. So you're right, there's absolutely a risk of oversimplification. Um, I and many people who work in the field, you know, absolutely loathe the term Celtic anything, <laughs> um, except when, you know, I use, I use it when I teach history of the English language and I teach students about language groups because this is what we call the Celtic languages and this is why they're related. Um, but, but I don't think that there's a, a concept of a Celtic anything that holds up in this book and I and I don't ever make that that argument um, and that's as a matter of fact that's the reason that I'm doing the study that I am because there were people who lived in close contact on these two islands you know who had political and cultural and intellectual exchanges. Um, these were things that they themselves were aware of. And that's why I'm kind to, to trying to treat it in a, a regional sense um, rather than purely a linguistic one. You know, this is, this is not to say that, that anything working on Celtic linguistics is invalid. Obviously it's not, there, are, are, there is much value in, in that type of comparative work. But I do think from a, a literary and historical perspective, it gets really dicey really fast. Um, and it's, it's kind of problematic to say, okay, we're going to look at Ireland and Wales, even though Wales shared an island with the English, who you know, we've conveniently forgotten about, and, and Ireland actually stretched across into what is now Scotland, which also seems to, to get conveniently forgotten about sometimes. Um, so the, it, it's, it's a, a tricky line sometimes, um, but, but it is one that I'm trying to walk in this book where the comparative work has a value because it's highlighting the connections that actually existed during this historical time and place um, without kind of you know there, there's nowhere that I'm saying okay you know the Irish and Welsh legends are like this and the the English one is over here um, trying to to highlight the connections between all of this material is it was kind of passed back and forth. Great um, I'm getting even more and more conscious of time. There's uh, one question that, uh, the, again, that's the last question on, on the book project itself. Um, that will be then the final question on uh, your experience in the hub. Um, so that, that last question, if you could keep the answer maybe, maybe short, is how much are, that's a question of how, how do you bring in um, the theory of na national identity? So how much are these texts potentially a reflection of, of a, a national identity? Um, yeah, good question. I 
it's been one of the things that I have been working out over the course of this project. Um, the, the short answer is I don't see anything approaching a modern national identity in the early medieval period. I see it as, as much more regional, right? How did a given group of people living in a given place um, come into existence? And I actually talk about this, I have a, you know, because the book is mostly early, uh, early medieval and Imo's an early medievalist. We, we tended to focus mostly on that material, um, but my final chapter actually focuses on the early modern period and is looking at the, the rise of nationalism during that time and how these origin myths start to become used much more for nationalistic purposes, you know, kind of one nation at a time, um, defending its past at the same time as early modern authors are pointing to the origins of their contemporaries and saying, now, hang on a minute, you have an origin myth with giants in it, that's clearly fiction, everything in your history is therefore a bunch of bunk. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but but not by much. Um, so I, I'm not finding kind of national um, strands in, in the early medieval period. I just, I, I don't think that's what's there. Okay, and uh, final question, Lindy, uh, it's, it's kind of a two-tier question, if you like. Um, one on the project and, and the mechanics of the project, if you like, in the hub. So that's your hub experience. Did you write the whole book while you were in Dublin? Or how much was that the thought process uh, developed before coming? I think this is, um, it's kind of daunting to probably write a book within, uh, within a, a year. So um, just that is more or less on how the project developed. But also, and that's, that's an interesting one uh, along the same lines, um, because you have the time within the hub and within kind of a, a, a think tank, if you like, you can obviously, ideas may wander. And um, have you started to shape your next project while you are in the hub? Have you collected ideas for, for, for a new project afterwards? All right, thank you. Um, yeah, great questions. So the, the answer to the first is again, yes and no. Um, I, I've been thinking about this project for a very long time. As I said, it arose out of material I was working on um, for my first book. I have been giving conference papers on some iteration of this material since 2012. So in that sense, I've been working on it and thinking about it for a very long time. As I've said, it's very complicated material. Um, but the answer to your question is really one of writing practice. Um, I have friends who can sit down and write a perfectly polished paragraph uh, in one go, and that, that is the paragraph that is published. I am not one of those people. Um, my introduction, I, I told him at one point that he was reading the 17th draft, and it was not an exaggeration. So in that sense, yes, I did write the entire book in Dublin, um, because I came with a very messy set of references and conference papers and ideas and chapters on Jeffrey of Monmouth that, that really never should have seen the light of day, um, and sat down on, you know, the beginning of October and, and with a clean Word document and just started writing. Um, and so that sense has been really great and, and really cathartic. Uh, but, but obviously, you know, the material was there lurking in the back of my brain for quite some time. Um, and the next project, yes, um, I've definitely started thinking of, of new things. Um, and, you know, the being in the hub and hearing people from all different fields talking about their work has been really inspirational um, in terms of you know, the, the range of projects people are working on, the level of interdisciplinarity. Um, so my next project is branching out from this one, um, gonna be much kind of broader, but this same basic thread of, of intellectual connection around the early medieval world. So looking at the physical transmission of manuscripts, um, texts, translations, and how they were brought by 
people like poets, diplomats, um, exiles, again, um, around the Irish Sea region and the, the kind of uh, broader North Atlantic. So looking also at Iceland and um, hopefully kind of, you know, France, Brittany uh, region. So yeah, that's, that's the plan. <laughs> Great, sorry. I, I, I think uh, Jane. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I do know something, Imo. I, I'm going to jump in here. But exactly. this, this is the most fascinating conversation. And it's such a shame to cut it short. But sadly, we have to uh, just because of time. Lindy, there are so many questions. Maybe we can take a you can answer them uh, uh, with colleagues. I mean, there's so many in there. Uh, before we thank you um, and thank Imo for, as I said, fascinating conversation, just a couple of announcements. Uh, we have an event this evening with Claire Moriarty. It's part of our arts and science reading group. Claire was in the Irish Times today on Barclay, and I'm sure you saw that. So that's going to be wonderful. That's at 6.30 tonight. There's still a place in the Zoom room. It's lovely. There's always a place in the Zoom room. Uh, so, uh, and then we've got our LinkedIn workshop with our early career researchers on Tuesday, 1 to 2. Again, please sign up for that. Uh, a fellow medievalist, Claire Featherstone Hall from uh, LinkedIn is actually running that. And there's gonna be another amazing fellow in focus with Torsten Molina. That's gonna be next Wednesday, the 24th at one o'clock. And Anna Shahood, who's in the Zoom room, um, uh, asked the question about Beowulf, is going to be in conversation uh, with uh, Torsten. So there's lots going on, including last but not least, uh, a seminar run by our Shape ID project called Bridging the Research Policy Gap. That's Thursday the 25th uh, at 12 noon. Uh, so plenty to continue to stimulate and challenge us over and help us uh, deal with uh, these challenging uh, times. Um, I simply want to draw the proceedings to a close by um, thanking you, Lindy, for being such an amazing part of our community over the past it'll be nearly 12 months, wishing you well with your book. Uh, but I'm so delighted that you're going to remain part of the community, uh, uh, obviously out in UCD, but it's fabulous that you'll be staying on in Ireland. So we'll look forward to continuing this conversation. Can't we wait to read that last chapter. It resonates <laughs> very much with my own work. Um, so, so thank you for today. And thank you, Imo. You, you know, what a great conversation and we really, really uh, appreciated you leading that. But to thank everybody um, in the Zoom room, I mean, great questions and um, obviously lots more to be said. And then a final thank you, of course, to the team at Trinity, especially uh, Francesca, who makes these events run so smoothly. So let's thank everybody, I was gonna say, in the customary way, in the privacy of um, uh, your, I don't know where, the porches, the bedrooms, the attics, the living rooms, your kitchens, if we can just thank Imo and Lindy uh, as we always do. So many, many thanks. Thanks, Lindy. Thanks, Jane. <laughs> um, that was a community. Stay well, Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 